be wondering why there's two of us. When Mike asked me to do the reading, I looked at it and jokingly said, oh, that's so long, I might get David to share it. And so it was. David's name, <laughs> David's name was put on the list, so that's grand. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and it's quite a sort of, yeah, it's got to be read slowly and with whatever, so I need all the help I can get. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 1 through to chapter 8, verse 4. Released from the law and bound to Christ. It's on page 1133 if you have the Pew Bible there. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to you, to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was, was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. <clears throat> Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly <clears throat> sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but is in sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Praise be to God. morning. I'd just like to add my welcome to you all and uh, thanks to the worship band for leading us and also to David and Barbara for leading, reading that long passage. <laughs> um, this morning we are, after a little break last week, we are going to continue our exploration of this wonderful letter the letter to the Romans, a letter which surely uh, lays claim to be perhaps the greatest letter ever written in history, certainly the one which has had the greatest influence in the history of this world. It's a letter which has been studied like no other, preached on more than any other, and it has almost certainly affected the lives of more people throughout history than any other. And so we're going to continue this morning uh, examining this passage we have in the letter. That uh, I hesitate to call it a chapter because letters don't have chapters, do they? But I may have to use that word occasionally. <clears throat> This letter appears to have been written around about 56, 57 AD in, uh, when Paul was in Corinth. And it would appear that a disciple called Phoebe, who lived in a, a town near to Corinth called Cancrea, was tasked with the job of taking this letter to the Roman church. And as we've moved through the first part of this letter, we've seen Paul's well-constructed arguments as he presents the truth of the gospel to the Roman church. 
A church which consisted almost certainly of a very diverse and multinational congregation, perhaps similar to our own church. There certainly was a healthy mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And we see that in the way that Paul so skillfully presents the message in a way which encompasses those who were living previously under the law and those who weren't. And as we've worked our way through this letter, we've seen some key verses. And I just want to look at them with you before we start in what we're doing today. And so in chapter 1, we read that in the gospel, the gospel that uh, Paul is presenting in this letter to the church in Rome, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is essential and it's critical and it's right at the very beginning of the letter. God's righteousness is revealed. And it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. When we come to the second chapter, we read that God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In the third chapter, it's even more uh, encompassing. All have sinned. That's a profound statement. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But then he goes on to say, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, we read that God will credit righteousness. That is, he will give us his righteousness for all who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Then in chapter 5 we read, If we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And then finally last uh, two weeks ago in chapter 6, Clay read to us chapter 6 and preached on this verse. For the wages of sin, something that we earn, the wages of sin is death. But the gift or the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we come now to this section that we read this morning. And uh, from this point on, as we read over this passage, in fact, as I read over this passage and this section of the letter, I was reminded of a kind of literature that I read when I was a student. Uh, it was very popular in the 19th century. All of us, no doubt, have read a novel, a novel with a, a, many of us enjoy reading novels, a good novel's got an 
interesting plot, or perhaps more than one plot, and a variety of characters. But in the 19th century in German literature, there was another form which became very fashionable. And it was called a novella, or novella, as we say in English. And here's a definition of the novella. And it says, for the German writer, a novella is a fictional narrative of indeterminate length. A few pages to hundreds of pages, and it's restricted to a single suspenseful event, situation, or conflict, leading to an unexpected turning point. Germans call it a wendepunkt, provoking a logical but surprising end. So we look at that definition, we see that there are two things. It focuses on one specific area and it has a turning point. And so in this section that we read today, chapter 7 and into chapter 8, I believe we see the turning point of this letter. And so I'm going to focus on that. Just as I, by the, by this, by the way, just as I was about to leave the house this morning, I opened my email box to see if I had any interesting emails. The very first email I read was, this is a turning point. And I thought, well, that is significant. <laughs> anyway. Steve gave us, when he was preaching a few weeks ago, a very memorable phrase taken from the Titanic film, where it said, he saved me from everything that I could be saved from. What an amazing statement. And then a few weeks later, David gave us a phrase to remember, that wonderful statement, how much more? He died for our sins, how much more shall we receive through his resurrection life? And so perhaps our key question this morning is, have I reached the turning point? Paul, as we have noticed already, as he writes this letter, he makes use of contexts and situations that the readers would be familiar with. And we've noticed that as we've read through the letter. He refers to the law courts, the slave market, and the temple. Here at the beginning of this passage that we read, he makes use of another very familiar aspect of life as he tries to help them to understand something which is central to the good news. Here he draws from their understanding of marriage and the commitment that that entails. We've probably noticed as we've read through particularly chapter 6 and today reading through chapter 7 that Paul has a lot to say about death uh, as he leads up to this and in this passage. In fact, in the whole letter to the Roman church, 
Death is mentioned 65 times, which is quite astounding. And it shows the place and importance in understanding that Paul has to say to the Roman church as he appreciates that this is a difficult concept that we need to get to grips with. In the last two times that we've been uh, going through the Romans uh, with, Clay, with Clay and with Abby, I think it was, there was a great e emphasis on life. And so there should be life in Christ. But I want to focus on death because I believe that we need to understand what this means as we come to a place of life. So here he gives us this example of marriage. Uh, he starts this passage that uh, Barbara read to us with a little bit in parenthesis. He says, I am speaking to those who know the law. In other words, he was addressing this primarily to the Jews. But I'm sure that the other members of the church would fully understand the implication of what he was saying. And all of us here uh, understand the law too. And we understand exactly what Paul is saying here. In a nutshell, he's saying it's a bit like being married to the law. The law is your husband. And as with a normal marriage, the only acceptable way to get free from your husband is through death. That is... Either he dies or you die. Either way, the legal commitment ceases at the death of either spouse. Now, the bad news is that the law, which is constantly reminding us of our sin and our failures, just like a nagging husband or a nagging wife, that law is not going to die. And so what's the good news? The good news, Paul says, is the only way to come into the blessings and the freedom of the free gift of life which Abby and Clay told us about is for us to die. You might say that doesn't sound too much like good news. Uh, I'm sure that the original recipients of this letter were also struggling with this statement. I sometimes imagine what it would have been like for poor old Phoebe. She was probably tasked with the job of reading this letter to the church. And I wonder, imagine how she went about it. Did they have stops for a coffee break, uh, uh, comfort stops, stops to talk through the implications of what that bit was about? I know that the awake students read recently the whole letter to the Romans in one sitting. And it took them, what was it, two hours, one hour? Can't remember. But I wonder how much of it they actually were able to digest in one straight reading. And so the poor church in Rome must have been struggling as they tried to comprehend what's all this about death. 
How does it work out in practice? You remember Jesus kind of alluded to this in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus referred to Nicodemus as the leader in Israel. And he says to Nicodemus, look Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus shakes his head and says, how can that be? How can I enter afresh into my mother's womb and be born again? We'd have to die to be born again. So what's this meaning? Uh, all uh, Paul's got to say here, all about death. But one of the problems that, as I thought about it, is that Paul uses the analogy of death in three different ways. And so it's a bit of what we sometimes say in Scotland, it's a bit of a ravel. It's a bit confusing. And so I thought perhaps if we looked at the three aspects of what he has to say in this letter about death, and we just unraveled them a little bit, it might help us to understand. And so the first aspect of death is that, and it's very clearly stated in his letter to the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. It's also in chapter 7 and verse 9 of what Barbara read to us. We are dead to God. This is a reality. We are separated from God through sin. And we are born like that. There's nothing that we can do about it. We were born like that. In Psalm 51, David said, I was sinful in, at birth. Indeed, he says, in my mother's womb, I was sinful. And if we think back to what God said to Adam in, uh, in the garden in Genesis, he said to him, you mustn't eat of the fruit of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He didn't say you will die later on as an old man. He said you will surely die on the day that you eat of this fruit. And so we're born dead to God. That's the first aspect of death that uh, the Apostle Paul explains to the church in Rome. Secondly, it's the result, the end result. The wages of sin is death. This is death physically and spiritually. So we lead a life dead to God, and at the end of it, we die physically, still dead to God. There's not a lot that we can do about either of these. But there's a third death that the Apostle Paul has to talk about. And that is death to self. This is radical. And this is what we've got in chapter 7. We read in chapter 5, we are to consider 
or reckon ourselves dead to sin. We have to die to self, die to sin, and experience a new life in Christ. What does this mean practically, and how do we get this life? The rest of the chapter that we have read, Paul presents a scenario of someone who's trying to attain a life of faith without having died. Close look at chapter 7 and we'll notice that it's all about me. In fact, the word me, the first person pronoun, appears 53 times in this chapter. And there's only three references to God right at the very end. It's all about me. And that's not going to work. Paul finishes the scenario with this statement, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And so we need to die to me. Here's a statement from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great German theologian and martyr for his faith. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work and follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it's the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. This is radical. There's a saying in English, there's no gain without pain. The challenge we are facing, each one of us here, no matter how long we have been a Christian, we are faced with this challenge. Have we died to me? What is our identity? We, and I use that term loosely, the human race, base our identity on some aspects of our lives. These may be positive. For example, we may base our identity on our academic achievements. We may base our identity on our business success. We may base our identity even on our sporting prowess. But sometimes we base our identity on something negative. So it might be a burden of guilt we carry with us from the past. It may be some form of abuse that we suffered as children. That becomes our identity. And it controls our lives. There are great examples of this in God's word. Here's an example of a negative identity. We have a young man in the Old Testament. He 
was the grandson of a king. He was really a prince. His father and his grandfather were killed in a war, in a battle. And this young man, he was just a child at the time. And his nanny, there's no mention of his mother. Perhaps his mother died at birth. But his nanny picked him up and ran and began to flee from what was dangerous. And as she fled, she dropped him. And probably he broke his legs, one leg or both, and he became a cripple. But as he grew up, he became a cripple not only physically, but emotionally. And we read the story where King David wants to show uh, kindness to this young man. And he sends a servant to go and get him. And he finds him living in a place called Lodibar, which just means the dump. And when he goes there and, and he says, look, King David wants to meet with you. This young man says, what does the king want with a dead dog like me? That was his, his identity. And the story goes on that King David took him and caused him to live in the king's palace and fed him the king's food. His life was transformed. And then we've got Paul himself, Saul of Tarsus, Honours graduate at the school of Gamaliel. Pharisee. Brilliant mind. And he meets Jesus. And what does he say? I died to the law. So that I might live to God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul died to the Saul of Tarsus and he became a new creation. We've got examples in our own congregation. I asked permission. I don't think he's here today. Oh, yes, he is. I asked John Adamson, if I could just use him as an example. Many of you, some of you, will remember his testimony. A, a, a homeless alcoholic sleeping in a public toilet. Jesus comes along and meets with him. And he is transformed. The old life has gone. A new life has come. What a beautiful example of what it means to die to self. Just last week, my eldest granddaughter was telling me she'd been at a church service in Oxford last weekend, I think it was, conducted by N.T. Wright. And it was a consecration of a young man, a young man known to some of you here, a young man who not so many years ago described himself as a gay atheist activist. And this young man met Jesus. And thanks to his meeting with Jesus, 
despite experiences that he had in various churches. This young man, David Bennett, comes to a place of faith, comes to a place of a new life in Christ. And so there was this consecration service last weekend where David Bennett is consecrated to a life of celibacy. He has committed his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He needs no other. That is what it means to die to self. Let me give you an illustration, rather amusing illustration perhaps, from God's creation. We'll watch a little video clip, two minutes. There's a caterpillar, and we're a bit like caterpillars. We're born, we're earthbound. These caterpillars are not quite sure where they're going. Uh, we're like that. When we are born, we don't know where we're going. Uh, and so we f- go with the flow. We follow one another. It doesn't matter what culture we come from. It doesn't matter what society we belong to. But we'll just go with the flow. And so we seem to be going in the right direction. We're going straightforward, following one another, not asking any questions. We're just living, earthbound. And then we meet up with other groups that are kind of going in the same direction. But they want to join us. So there's a bit of a problem here, but uh, we don't kind of give way easily, but uh, we do eventually, and we keep on earthbound and following one another. We all follow one another, don't we? But then things take a funny turn, and we don't seem to be going in a straight line anymore. (laughs) Perhaps we're going round in circles. But let's keep going. Perhaps we'll get there sometime. Things get a bit mixed up, and we start to (laughs) just all bunch together. And we end up in a heap, and that is us. We don't know where we're going. We're not going anywhere anymore. That's a bit like life. But the good news is that that is not the end. And that's not the end for those poor caterpillars. Because those caterpillars do an amazing thing. They create a little cage for themselves and they crawl into it. It's called a chrysalis. And in that place, they start to self-destruct. They actually start to eat their own bodies. And it becomes a kind of mushy soup. And you think, it's as near to death as you can possibly be. But then, there's this amazing transformation. And out of that mushy soup, there emerges this amazing butterfly. And this butterfly is no longer earthbound. 
it can fly. And I just want to say that this is a great illustration of what it means to die to self and to live in Christ Jesus. This, my friend, is the turning point in our lives. And Paul uses, almost uses the terminology that we have just used later on in this letter to the Romans. In chapter 12, he talks about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he says there, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like the caterpillars all following each other. Don't be conformed. Be transformed. And that word transformed there is literally metamorphosed. Be metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind. By dying to self that you might live in Christ Jesus. Do you think that butterfly ever looked back and thought, well, my identity really is a caterpillar? I don't think so. There's a new life, friends, but we've got to die to the old one. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so as we read this passage, we come to the turning point. We come to the vendapunct. Paul asks this question, who can deliver me? And then we read, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and of death. There's a lot of references there to the word law, but it's not the law as we understand it earlier in the, in the book. It's probably better even being translated as the principle. The principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the principle of sin and death. What's your identity? What is your identity today? Are you still trying to identify with the old person? Are you reached a point where you say, it's not going to work? Oh, wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who can deliver me? I need to die to that old self. And I need to live. I need to fly in Christ. Let's have a moment of silence and I'll just pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that there is an amazing invitation given to us. Come 
and live. Die to the old self. Be transformed. Be metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind. So we invite you, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, challenge us this morning to make that turning point. To put aside the old man and to be born afresh into newness of life. We need you, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to enable us to do it. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, change our lives, we pray, for your glory. Amen. But one more verse there, is there? Put up? No? Yeah. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We're going to sing, I'm no longer a slave to sin.